for the first time, uh, this is the Read and Rant. And what we do here is we engage in the Word of God. Uh, we engage in the Word of God where we spend about half an hour uh, reading His Word, closer to 20 minutes, really, reading His Word, and then spend another half an hour or however long uh, we're afforded to reflect and to ruminate over the Word. Um, it is it is easily the most important activity that I do in my life. And I'm giving you um, a little peek into my daily discipline in the word of God. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and what I hope, you know, my hope is that you would also begin to develop that habit in that rhythm in your life, because it is the most transformative thing that you can do is to discipline, is to discipline yourself every day, um, every day in the reading of the word of God. Um, and so that's what we do here. Um, the primary task, the primary activity, the, the the primary focus, my vision for the read and rant is to see every believer empowered by the word, to see every believer read through the entire Bible. That's it. I want every believer, every Christian, every everyday Christian to say that I've read through the whole Bible. And so I want to do that with you. And I'm journeying with you to do that. Um, as we read through the entire scripture, we're in Exodus 34 today. Um, if you ever miss a read and rant, just follow the Facebook group, our Facebook group, just uh, join the font everywhere on Facebook. I would encourage you to do that. Join the font everywhere on Facebook. Um, and there you'll be able to catch the prior read and rants, but we're going to read all the way through. We've read all the way through the new Testament. Okay. And now we're going to read through the whole old Testament. And I think, and, and I, at least prayerfully, what I hope is that for many of you, you're beginning to see, how much you can get through by simply disciplining yourself in the reading of the word. That's it. Like it, it transforms your lives and you'll see how much scripture, like <laughs> for us to get through all of the new Testament in, you know, in under about two months, well, a little over two months, actually. I mean, we missed some days in there. We missed a couple days in there, but to see, let's just say in three months, just spending half a Netflix episode a day, Half a Netflix episode a day, we were able to get through the entire New Testament. That's 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 amazing. And and, and that's what um, I want you to see that I want you to say for those of you who have been journeying with us from the beginning. Now you can actually say I read through the whole New Testament. That to me is I mean, I just that that gets me excited for you to say I've read through the, the whole New Testament. I read through the whole thing. I read the whole thing. Um, and now we're getting to the Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament's a much larger book and it's going to take us more time to get through it. But guys, we're talking 20 minutes a day. And so for some of us who can't stay for the entire rant or can't stay, it's okay. Even if you can't stay for the rant, um, I prefer that you just hang and just read the word for yourself. Okay. And, and see how transformative that will be in your life. Um, as we're reading the word, I want you to ask three questions. Man, I just feel the presence of God. I'm really excited about this today. Um, but I want you to ask three questions. I want you to ask first, what is God revealing in this moment as you read the word concerning himself? What is God? Second question, what is God revealing concerning people? And the third question I want you asking is, what is God revealing concerning me? Okay. What is God revealing concerning me? We're going to read through the entire Old Testament with that posture. 
And then we'll go back and read the whole New Testament again. And then we'll go back and read the whole Old Testament again. Who knows? Maybe I'll just make this a thing I just do with you guys. And as people come in, you can just follow the revival. And every time, mind you, I can't count how many times I've read through the whole Bible. Okay? I can't count. However, even, even as I read it today, I'm still getting something new. I'm still getting some a, a refreshing. I'm still getting ministered to. Um, you can't ever be complete in your reading of the word. Um, and so in the same way that you don't get to fully get, you don't get to fully know your spouse till the end. <laughs> and even then you're still getting to know your spouse in the same way. You don't get to fully, fully, fully know God. It's a relationship. It's a growing in each other. And so, um, and that's what I'm praying for, for you, that you would engage in that. And I pray that this word will transform you. And I love the testimonies that I've gotten from a lot of you who have said that just me engaging with you in this word every day has changed my life. Like it's brought, it's brought tears to me to hear people sharing those testimonies to say, Hey, Isaac, things are changing in my life. Like there's things just changing in me that I didn't know that and and that to me is the key it's the key family like you do that i'm telling you it will change your life i'm not talking about reading the verse of the day and doing bible study and going to church i was like just for yourself just reading through the word and i want you to see the power of the word that even when you don't understand every element of the word there's so much there even as we read it i always tell you get that guys that every morning i go man there's just too much here to unpack and that's why this isn't a bible study because if it was a bible study then we could spend the whole year on genesis right um but that, that's not what we're here to do uh we're here to simply just engage in the word so we're not here to unpack every little part of it and you may not understand all of it and that's okay the word is not for your understanding it's to open your spirit to feed your spirit to allow the lord to deposit in you what you need in that moment in order to grow in him. The word is meant to exegete you as much as you ought to exegete it. And so we're not here to be informed by the word. We're here to be transformed by the word. And that's what we're here to do. Okay. And so we're just going to discipline ourselves in reading the word because I want you, whether you understand it or not, to see how it transforms your life. Legit. Like it's that simple. Just read it. Even if you don't get, if you don't understand a single sentence you read, keep reading it. Keep reading it, okay? Um, exegete. So exegete uh, means to 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 extrapolate, to pull out, to get out of the word. Meaning you're taking out what the word is saying. It's in. It, it, that's what we call the exegeting of the word. When you're pulling out the truth of what the word is saying. Um, and so it's a dividing of the word, right? It's a dividing. It's a parsing through. It's a cutting of the word and pulling it out. Um, and, and so that we, we want the word to do that to us as well. Okay. We want the word. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. Thank you. It's a dissecting. Okay. And so um, exegesis is important, but we also want to engage in the word and allow the word to engage us. Okay. Let's pray and let's get started. Father, we thank you. Lord, even now, I just, <laughs> I am, um, <laughs> I'm very much aware of your presence. Lord, for everyone who's in this uh, chat right now, um, everyone who's here, both on Facebook and on TikTok, and for those who will be listening to it later or listening to it on the podcast, Lord, I just, I just pray right now that you would meet them in that moment. Lord, meet each and every one of us 
Lord, as we engage in your word, Father, we pray that the truth of who you are is revealed. We pray that your heart would be revealed, your will would be revealed. Not only in your word then, but Lord, what are the implications of that for us today? Lord, we bless you today, Lord, we thank you. Because uh, we anticipate something transformative in our hearts today. And we say that in your name we pray. Amen. Exodus 34 family, let's engage, let's get in on it. And then we're going to break it down. We're just going to go where the Lord leads. I got nothing prepped. Haven't read Exodus 34 in a minute, actually. Um, um, And so it's going to be interesting to see what the Lord has to say uh, to us uh, today as we engage in the word. Father, speak to us. Verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So be ready in the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first one. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And he said, behold, I will make, sorry, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifices to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall not make no molding gods, molded gods for yourselves. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in the appointed time of Abib. In the month of Abib, you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. 
every every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep, or the firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you sh- and if you will not redeem him, you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. Hmm. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. And you shall observe the feast of weeks, of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of the ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. For he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he woke on the tablets of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. And the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them. And Moses called, sorry. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children came near and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children whatever he had seen and commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Hmm. Then Moses gathered all the congregation, Exodus 35, sorry. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, these are the words which the Lord had commanded, has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, and bronze, purple blue and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you 
shall come and make what the Lord had commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil offering, the table of the poles, the utensils, um, and the showbread. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. The incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar for burnt offering with the bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver in its base. The hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, the screen for the gate and of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords. The garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments of Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons the ministers as priests and all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone who came, whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing, they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting and all its servants and all the holy garments. They came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all jewelry and gold. That is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord and every man with whom was found blue, purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair and rams, uh, ram skins and sorry, and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver and bronze brought the Lord's offering and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of, of the service brought it. And the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought them as they spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and the spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work, which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. And Moses said to the children of Israel, see, the Lord has called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and in knowledge in, in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works to work in gold and silver and bronze and in the cutting of jewels for setting and in the carving of wood and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer of the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine linen, and of the weaver, those who do every work, and those who design artistic works. Chapter 36. And Bezalel and Aholiab, and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all men of work and service for the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put the wisdom and everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work. Hmm. And they received from Moses all the offering with the children of Israel and had brought for the work the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen 
who were doing all the work in the sanctuary came each from the work of each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work, which God has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp. Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient enough for the work to be done. Indeed, too much. (laughs) Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked in the tabernacle made 10 curtains woven in fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim, they made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain was four cubits, and the curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains one to, to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another, and he made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain and on the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to the other. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that might be one tabernacle. And he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. And he coupled the five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. They made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the second set. He also made 50 bronze clasps to the to couple the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and the covering of badger skins above that. For the tabernacle, he made boards of acacia wood Standing upright, the length of each board was 10 cubits and the width of each board, a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding to one another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle and he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its own tenons and the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each board from the west side of the tabernacle. He made, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far west side. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. And he overlaid the boards with gold and made their fing- sorry, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. And he made the veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen and it was worked with artistic with the artistic design of cherubim. And he made four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by the weaver, and their five pillars with their hooks, and he overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold, but with five sockets were bronze." 
We'll read 37 and then we'll be done. Then Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold all around it. And he cast it for four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side, two rings on the other side of it. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the two rings on the side of the ark to bear the ark. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits with its length and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of beaten gold and he made them of one piece at the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub at one end on this side and the other cherub at the other end on that side. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece of the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. And he made the tabernacle of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold all around it. Also, he made a frame of the handbreadth all around it and made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. And he cast it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that were at its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And he made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table and overlaid them with gold. He made of pure he made of pure gold the utensils which were on the side, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, and its pitchers for pouring. He also made the lampstand of pure gold and hammered work he made the lampstand, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers were of the same piece. The six branches came out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms of on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for six branches coming out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself were four bowls made of made like almond blossoms each with its ornamental knob and flower. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold, and he made it seven lamps, its wick trimmers, and its trays of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold, he made it with all its utensils. He made the incense altar of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its width a cubit. It was squared. And two cubits was its height and its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around and its horns. He also made for it a molding of gold all around it and made two rings of gold for it under the molding by its corners on both sides as holders for the poles which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He also made a holy anointing oil and a pure incense of pure spices, according to the work of the perfumer. We're going to stop here. We're going to stop here. Um, if you're here for the first time, 
this is uh this is our read and rant and what we do is is we spend 20 to 30 minutes every day reading through scripture the goal here is for you guys for every person to say that i've read through the bible and we're going to do it together for half an hour every weekday one weekday at a time for 20 to 30 minutes so that's why we're here and then afterwards i spend some time just reflecting on the scripture itself um I've got my Facebook family here. I've got my TikTok family here. Good to see you, Derek. Good to see you, Cassie, Hentoya, Nay, John, Alan. I got all my regulars on Facebook who are here with me. And I've got all my regulars on, on TikTok who are here with me as well, which is awesome. Uh, Jason and, and um, Bub's mom and all you guys. I love it. I love that you guys are here. Um, it is... It is an incredible power, incredibly powerful activity to engage in the word. And for those of you who have been engaged with us, we've been reading every weekday and now we're in Exodus 37. We're about to we're about to get out of Exodus, y'all. We got through Genesis. We're about to get out of Exodus and then we're going to get into Leviticus and the numbers and Deuteronomy. It's going to get really interesting when we get there. But if you notice what I'm doing is as we are engaging in the word and for those of you who are here for the first time, you're like, man, I wish I caught the other ones. I want to catch the other ones. If you want to catch the other ones, just go to the font everywhere on Facebook because they're all saved there um, because I'm actually broadcasting from two platforms. So you can go to the font everywhere and catch it there. Enough with that. I want to get into this um, with, with the little bit of time that I have afforded to me. Um, it is... My uh, let me back that up. My, my prerogative in this time that we're spending together in the reading of the word, my prerogative right now is to is to realign your perspective when you read the word. Let me say that one more time. My prerogative, like my priority. Like what I actually want to do and accomplish here is to realign your perspective, to change your vantage point, to change how you read it. Because for many of us, maybe we've never read through the whole book of Exodus and this is your first time doing it. Congratulations. But for those who have read it or whenever we talk about Exodus and the books that follow it, we tend to read it from uh, a myopic perspective. Like we have this like really, really focused way that we, that we read the scripture and because we're so focused and how we read it, we miss out on the grand biblical story. We miss out on the grand story of the Bible. We miss out on the purpose by which the book even exists in the first place. And so, and, and, and in part, that's the reason why I believe there's such a disconnect for many people, for many Christians, there's this profound disconnect of what's happening in the Old Testament versus what's happening in the New Testament. There's this disconnect for a lot of believers when they read the word um, as they don't know where certain things apply. So for me, what I'm doing is, is I'm backing you up for a minute and I'm allowing you to read 
or at least encouraging you, not allowing you, but encouraging you to read the scripture from the grand narrative perspective, from the entire biblical story, from the entire biblical narrative, because all of this, my brothers and sisters, is a story. The Bible is a big story. That's what it is. It's not a book of rules. It's not a book of laws. It's not a book of, 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 of you know, um, you know, edicts and, and, and theses and, 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 you know, ideals that you just kind of put together in order to form out to, you know, what, what being a Christian looks like. That's not what it is. It's actually a story. It's a love letter. It's a story that's being written. But often what happens is, is that, and, and in that larger story, there are many stories in it. Okay. So in the large, larger biblical story, there are many stories in it. But because we don't read the scripture from the grand narrative, we get lost in the sauce. We get lost in the minutia of it all because we're not reading it from the main context. And so rather than looking at the elephant, we're, we're, we're grabbing onto the tail and arguing about what kind of rope the rope is when it wasn't even a rope in the first place, it was a tail. And so, and so for me, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm prefacing all this so you can see where I want to go today, I'm prefacing all of, uh, I'm prefacing this so that you understand what's really important here, what we need to draw out. Yes, the scripture is important, but the, the, the grand narrative and the grand story is about a bloodline that is called to bring and to institute righteousness and justice, the restoration of all things to the earth in a future appointed time. When man broke the world, when sin entered the world, through sin came death, through sin came evil, pestilence, famine, disease, everything that wasn't good came out of that. And yet God was reinstituting his justice and his righteousness, making all things right again to reestablish Eden on earth through mankind. He's establishing justice through mankind. He's establishing it because God instituted the rule of the earth through mankind. When we say that man has been made in the image of God and according to his likeness, to be made in the image of God is not just, oh, I look like God or I'm an image of God. I think that's improper theology. People always say that, like, you look like God because you're made in the image of God. So when people see you, they see God. That's not that's not exactly right. That's not exactly right. That's not what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God is to have some of God's character, some of God's attributes. That's in part what it means to be made in the image of God. But to be made in the image of God is much more than that. To be made in the image of God is to actively be a representative of God on earth. That is that God is executing his rule, his righteousness, his justice, all of it through mankind. God has chosen it this way. You go, well, you know, I'm waiting for God to come down and to do. God is not doing anything anymore. Okay. God is not doing anything without the participation of human beings. Okay. There's nothing that God does on the earth now without the collaboration of human beings because he called, he breathed into, 
He breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, a living nefesh. He became the representative of God. So now if God has called us to be his representatives, we choose our own agenda over God's agenda, then we have broken the whole purpose by which all things exist, which is for the glory of God. Okay. And this is what happened when mankind sinned. He veered away from God's agenda for the earth and understand that God's agenda is the right agenda. It's the only agenda. And so when he veered away from God's agenda in the same way that if an ambassador were to go to another country and present their agenda over what the president's agenda is, they would lose their job or their job would be compromised. And so as human beings, our being in the image of God was compromised. But God, who is righteous and who's good, devised a plan to reinstitute our rule and our authority in its fullness on earth. And that the reinstituting of the plan could not happen unless he incorporated mankind with it. Okay. And so God now, after seeing all the consequences of what happens when man does his own thing and not God's thing, man does what is right in his own eyes. And in the end, it leads to destruction, man doing his own thing in his own way never leads to anything good. Let me say that one more time. When mankind is doing his own thing in his own way, it never leads to anything good. When man's about his own self-preservation, when mankind's all about his position, when mankind's about his power, when mankind's about his pleasure, whenever it's about what we want over what God wants, it never leads to anything good. It leads to destruction. What if I told you that everything that is evil in the world has come out of mankind doing what he thought was best for himself? Let me say that one more time. Everything that is evil in the world has come out of mankind doing what is best for himself. This is why no political ideology will represent the kingdom of God, because every political ideology has something to do with either self-preservation or power, both of which fall very short of the glory of God, because God's kingdom will not be represented by a political ideology, you know, um, and I know it's going to make some people uncomfortable. Okay. I know it's gonna make some people uncomfortable, but I have to speak the truth of the gospel is this is why Jesus cannot be a Republican. And this is why Jesus can't be a Democrat. He can't be either one because both of them propagate a self-preservation, a man glorifying ideology. And yet here we are in this world. And as participants in this world, we through mankind's systems establish our uh, establish the kingdom of God in it. OK, so so what I'm saying to you is, is what I'm saying to you is, is that um, mankind subverted God's rule. And yet God didn't want to leave it this way. Everything that was destructive, everything, everything that's going wrong in the world. The reason why the Twin Towers happened was because of mankind's desire for self-power and self-preservation. OK, um, all the evil we see in the world, racism exists out of fear and out of power and preservation. Sexism exists out of fear and out of power and preservation. We can go we can go through everything that is wrong in the world and. 
It comes out of initially a desire for something that we ourselves think is good in and of ourselves, okay? A racist doesn't ever see that they're doing something bad, <laughs> okay? Because a racist is trying to preserve themselves. Um, um, there, there are, um, even even in the KKK or uh, other racist organizations, you know, there, there, there's, there's an element of dignity in it and there's an element of self-preservation in it. And so they themselves cannot see that it's wrong because there's some, there's a semblance of good that's in it, right? There's a semblance of good that's in it. They're trying to preserve something. They're trying to protect something. And so it only makes sense that I'm trying to preserve this. But in the end, what does it lead to? It leads to destruction. Okay. Man does what is right in his own eyes. And in the end, it leads to destruction. I'm sorry. I'm ranting. I'm sorry. That wasn't the point. I just want to make sure you understood where I'm going with this now is that God now says, we're going to, we, he did the reset with Noah that didn't work out. And then after he did the reset with Noah, he then makes a covenant with Abraham and says that it's through this bloodline now that he's going to, through the bloodline of Abraham, he's going to reestablish the new earth through Abraham. He's going to establish his kingdom on earth. Okay. He's going to establish his kingdom on earth. God is making all things new. He's going to overcome the world and overcome the system. He's going to do all that. And he's going to do it through mankind. <laughs> okay. God is not doing, God is not coming in and throwing blown wind somewhere and doing a shuka shuka and things are going to happen. He's going to do it through mankind. God is not doing anything on the earth. I want to make sure you understand this. He's not doing anything in this world without the participation of human beings. Okay. I want you to understand that. That's why people are sitting around waiting for God to do something. God, I'm waiting for you. God is saying, yeah, I'm doing it through you. There's stuff that we're waiting for God for when God's waiting on us to allow him to work through us. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask for or think according to the power that works in us. That's Bible, y'all. Okay. His power works in us. Okay. Sorry. Ranting. Abraham, Isaac, Israel, okay, bloodline, the children of Israel. Now in the wilderness, God called Abraham to father a nation that would bring restoration to all nations. And that this nation would be a nation of priests. What are priests? Representatives of God. Priests are mediators of God. Priests are, are, are the representative of God in human form. They were the mediators. So, so God is calling a nation of priests to do what? To image God. <laughs> so the children of Israel were called and chosen to image God. I know you're going to hear me say this over and over. You're going to be, you're going to be hearing me say this until it makes sense until, until it finally takes root. You're going to hear me say this throughout the entire old Testament that the law that we're seeing here that is written was not written to the world. It was not written to us. These laws were written to the chosen people of God, 
who would be a kingdom of priests who would show what God's rule on the earth ought to look like. So you read the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was not written to us. It was written to them. We're reading through Exodus now. And so these people who have been called to institute this justice and righteousness to bring and to make all things right and to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like. That was their duty. That was their job. And so because of that, they were set apart. They were different. They were set apart from everyone else. Remember, not us, them. I'm going to keep saying that because you're going to see how this eventually connects. Not us, but them. Not us, but them. Hmm. So now when you read Leviticus and you read Numbers and you read Deuteronomy, you're not reading it to know what you ought to do. Okay? You're not reading it to know how you ought to live as a Christian. You're reading it to know how God called the people and set them apart from everyone else. So, I want you to understand this. This setting apart and this rule that God gives these people was one that did not have the power that we think of. These people were not called to be an economic power. They were not called to be an institutional power. These people, this family of Abraham was called to be a nation that would live sacrificially for all nations. They would live in suffering and submission to reveal the kingdom of God. That's why people who bring all these doctrines about, well, we're the chosen people of God. Do you really want that? <laughs> you know, the ones that say, well, we're the chosen people of God. What is the consequence? I'm sorry, I'm ranting. I'm sorry, but I, I got to make sure I point this all out because this is important because some people that are still wrestling with that would say, well, the, we're the chosen people of God. Do you know what it means to be chosen? It means to be in complete submission and sacrifice to God. It means to humble yourself. It means to be lesser of others. It means, it means to rule through suffering. It means to rule through suffering. We're, we're going to see it. We're going to see it all through the scripture here that the children of Israel were called to be separate and to be set apart so that others can see God through them to see the kingdom of God through them. They were not called to have lots of money and power and influence and all of that. That's not what they were called to be. They were called to influence through suffering. All right, here's a spoiler alert, spoiler alert. They could not be, and that's what we're gonna read through the entire, I'm gonna give you a picture here so then we can get to my point. They could not be, we're gonna read through the entire biblical narrative that they could not be the people that they committed to be by the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. They could not be, they continue to fall short of the calling that God gave them to make them a people to bring holiness and righteousness. But God 
promised Abraham that through him, all the nations would be blessed. So when the children of Israel could not be what God called them to be, then God came among them and he in Jesus Christ became the Hebrew that the Hebrews could not be. He became the child of Israel that the others could not be. He was the lion of Judah who lived the life that they could not live. We read this old covenant and we read it in this promise that was made and these people who were called to fulfill this could not meet it. We That's what the Old Testament is all about. It was about a Hebrew people that could not be what they had committed to be, that is to be the imagers and the representatives of God on earth. And so what did God do? God's promise is still yes and amen. His promise never returns to him void. And so what happens is, is that now he, a Hebrew does come out among them in order to fulfill the promise of God, to be what they could not and to do what they could not. So the rule that they ought to rule looks like how Jesus lived. Christ, Jesus was the perfect Hebrew. So Christ, remember, he was chosen by God, the firstborn of all creation, and yet he was rejected by man. He was chosen by God, but he lived in poverty. He was chosen by God, but he was rejected. Notice that his rule did not come in elections or governments, his rule was not established through um, through military might or through economic might. His, his rule was not established because he had money and power. The kind of power he had was one that was through incredible sacrifice and submission. Christ overcame in suffering. I heard a pastor say, um, uh, what was it? Um, a good pastor of mine who's now a friend with me on TikTok. And man, he, he said something that was so profound. He said something that was so profound. He said that there are a lot of Christians today that are so concerned about the end times because there are a lot of Christians today that are profoundly worried about the suffering that's going to come. Most Christians are afraid of the end times because most Christians are afraid of the suffering that's about to come. And so they want to know, are we going to be here for the suffering or is God going to take us before the suffering? When does God take us away so that we do not suffer? And he said something really profound. He said, he said, he, the reason why Christians are so concerned about it is because they're avoiding suffering. When as Christians, we should be running towards suffering for the faith. We should be contending for the faith. We should expect suffering. Paul said, do not consider it strange when you encounter these various trials. God's rule is established through suffering. So think twice when you say that you're the chosen people of God. Because to be chosen by God is to willingly choose to live a life of perpetual sacrifice. So all those people, I know... Um, I get, I get, I get these conversations from Hebrew Israelites. We're the chosen people of God. We're the chosen people of God. I say, and I, my question for them is, do you know what that, what that even means to say that you're the chosen people of God? What does that mean? Well, we're the chosen people of God. What does that mean? Does that mean what you, 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 you can have power 
influence? What does that mean to say you're the chosen? Being the chosen people of God, the children of Israel, were the chosen people of God to be images of God everywhere they went through their daily activity of sacrificing of themselves in order to bring the righteousness and the justice of God on earth. Okay, I'm done. And yet we're going to see here how they fail. They're impetuous. They're annoying. They're impatient. They are. We'll read it. We're going to see it all through the scripture. Who these people were. To the point where God was like, man, I'm just going to start over. And Moses was like, wait, Lord, don't, you know, Moses pleaded with God. He contended with God. And, and so, and so when Moses goes down, he sees the worship of the golden calf. That was my reading rant yesterday. You can go back to it. I'm getting to my point today. And of course, um, Moses, he witnesses it and in witnessing them failing and worshiping this golden calf and this golden idol, he throws down the tablets. The tablets are broken. And now Moses goes back up to speak to God and God is now beginning to reinstitute his justice and his law and we're beginning to see now the works of grace that God could have moved on but God chose to stick with these people because God has put his name on them he said I will be your God and you will be my people the beautiful thing about being chosen by the grace of God is that what God puts on you is irrevocable. As much as you fall short, it's irrevocable. As much as you fall short, it's irrevocable. <laughs> and sometimes people go, well, why would God do that? Why would God be, why would God be so forgiving because God is in the business of restoring his name. God put his name on his children. If God put his name on his children, then God's love is selfish as well. Because God, <laughs> pay attention family. God is in the business of restoring his name as well because he's put his name on you. Even in God restoring mankind, God is restoring his identity on this earth as well because he put his name on you. You can't represent anything else. And so because he put his name on you, he is going to relentlessly pursue you because he put his name on you. He's going to relentlessly engage in the activity of your restoration. And because he put his name on you, he will not tolerate you representing anything else other than himself. And we begin to see the person of God. When he says, I am a jealous God. That's what we read in this text. He says, I am a jealous God. He's jealous, not because he doesn't want anybody else for you. That's why we're jealous. Side note, our jealousy does not look like God's jealousy. You go, well, God's jealous, so we can be jealous. Oh, hold on, hold on, pause there real quick. <laughs> um, our jealousy is not God's jealousy. 
when when God says here that he is a jealous God, he's not talking about the kind of jealousy that we have when we get jealous because, you know, somebody else likes something else more than us and we feel like that person should be us. No, God's jealousy is even, even more profound because God has inserted himself into you. So his jealousy comes out of your misrepresentation of him. If you want to make that up, take a note on that, write that down somewhere. So profoundly important to understand when in this text, God is saying that he's a jealous God. He's not jealous. Like people think, oh, that jealous boyfriend or that jealous girlfriend. That's not, that's not God's jealousy. God ain't no kid. That's exactly right. We sin. Our jealousy is sinful. And then we try to make God, we try to turn God into some jealous husband with a wife beater on. Or, or we try, we try to turn God into like this, this teenager, you know, oh yeah, he's jealous too. So it's okay for me to be jealous. No. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. God's jealousy is rooted in truth. God's jealousy is rooted in the character of who he is. God's jealousy is rooted in the fact that he inserted himself in you. And because you represent him, when you look something like, when you look like something that doesn't look anything like him, it it makes him upset. Wait, God gets mad? Of course God gets mad. He's a person. And God gets profoundly jealous because he sees himself in you and yet you're taking his image and misrepresenting it worshiping other gods imagine god bowing down to another idol that he created imagine that imagine god bowing down to an image that he can make himself That's the kind of jealousy that God has. How disrespectful are we when we put other things above God? Yes, God is a jealous God because he is who he is in you. If God could separate, I'm going to say something that's going to be profound here. If God can separate himself from you, he does. He wouldn't need to be jealous of you. His jealousy is rooted in the fact that he is in you, <laughs> that you are already his image. Imagine when his image bows down to another image. I'll give you an example. So there's a football player. Maybe you guys know him. Maybe you guys don't. But um, there's a football player. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he plays He plays for the Steelers. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. If anybody watches football, you know who he is. He's, you know, he's, he's one of the top wide receivers in the game. And he... He started something really controversial this year. He goes on TikTok and like he's 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 one of the, he's a huge TikToker. But he's one of the, probably the biggest TikToker among football players. Anyway, um he goes to different teams and when he plays when he when he gets to their stadium before the game, he goes on top of their logo and he dances on their logo. He does, you know, his little TikTok dance on their logo. So, a Pittsburgh Steeler dancing on a Bengals logo and Bengals fans went crazy. All the other teams went crazy. People got upset 
They're like, how dare, how dare he disrespect our logo and our image by going on top of it and doing his dance on top of it. And yeah, he he's taking some, that's right, Gary. He's taking some hits from players who got profoundly upset by the fact that this, this guy just shows up to our stadium and disrespects us by going on top of our logo to dance on it. In football, I'm just going to use football because I'm a big football fan. So um, there are times where players will score touchdowns and they'll try to run to the center of the field to do a dance on top of the logo, um, on top of the logo when they're on a different team or when they're away. And and usually before he gets to the middle of the field, another player will tackle him and take him down because they won't allow that guy on the other team to go on top of their logo and disrespect it, even if he did score a touchdown. Imagine this. You are God's logo. And imagine God's logo bowing down to somebody else's logo. Of course, God is jealous, but his jealousy is different. Because God has put his name on you. God has put his name on you. You are his image and his representative. LeBron James plays for the Los Angeles Lakers. (laughs) Imagine if LeBron James showed up to New York and put on a New York Knicks jersey and got on the court, people would lose their minds. People would go, what's he thinking? What's going on here? What's happening? Why is LeBron James wearing a New York Knicks jersey? What's going on here? What's happening? Everybody would lose it because LeBron James is not representing his team well. God's jealousy comes out of our misrepresentation of him. And this is why God iterates over and over again. When he says, I'm a jealous God, he's, he's literally telling them, I put my name on you. Make me look the part. So family, here's the question that I have. And I have one last point. I'm sorry, God, that took a long time to get here. I'm sorry. So here's my question, because we're going to talk about this logo that was restored. But right now, this logo is broken. This logo has this logo at this point is misrepresented. It's not looking good. These people built a calf and worshipped it. How offensive is that to God? That's like LeBron James. It, if LeBron James put on a Knicks jersey, is, is, is that big of a deal? Imagine how much bigger of a deal that a God of infinite greatness, infinite importance, infinite identity, ontologically above all things that we are, that he would be reduced to his image, bowing down to a golden calf. If we can get all riled up about LeBron James, how much more riled up should God get about us? 
how much more riled up should God get about us? <laughs> Here's the thing we can be encouraged about. If God is jealous of us, then that should reveal to us that we are of incredible importance to God. Stay with me, fam. If God is jealous of these children, the children of Israel, it's because they are of utmost importance to him. They play an important role. If God was not jealous, it's because they mean nothing to him. But the fact that he said he's a jealous God is not about his control, but about your importance, about their importance. So I had to make sure I put light to that because I've been thinking about this jealous God thing. And how we seem to diminish it, but God's jealousy is way more profound than our middle school forms of jealousy. With slightly more maturation. One last point. And I want you to take this as a as a a word of conviction and a word of encouragement. What did we read here? We read the execution of the tabernacle construction. Remember what we read up to this point. Guys, will you give me like 10 more minutes, 10, 15 more minutes? I hope you guys can give me a little bit of that because I just want to make sure I unpack what we read here and what God is speaking into. Just give me like 10, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. We'll see. But this is going to be really helpful to you. The prior chapters that we read we read up to here, we read the encounter and the exchange that God is having with Moses at the mountain. He tells Moses and gives Moses meticulous detail about the tabernacle that he's going to build. That's going to represent his presence among the people and what it ought to look like. And how it ought to be built. He gives him dimensions. And we, we read all that. We, we read all that. Right. Moses come down, comes down. And the people are worshiping the calf. He breaks it. He goes back up. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets the new tablets. That's chapter 34. He gets the, he gets the new tablets. And once he gets the new tablets, he restores the covenant that, we had, that he had with them again because his name is on them. We talked about that after he has instituted it. Now they get into the business of executing the plan. Stay with me. God gives him the plan. And now what we read in Exodus 35, 36 and Exodus 37 is we read the execution of the plan. You with me? We read the execution of the plan. So we just read through everything that God had told Moses to do. And now Moses actually executing it and doing it. So now he's actually calling the artisans. He's calling the guys. He's all the stuff we talked about. Now it's actually coming to fruition. It's happening. 
And so what was brought down, what was revealed to him prophetically is now being manifest physically through their activity. Okay. Um, the, you know, the Ark of the Testimony, the table show, we're building the tabernacle, all that. The people bringing the offerings. They brought so many offerings to God that that they, they actually had more than they actually needed. That's another word for another day. That's not where I want to go. But they have more than they actually needed. Everything was brought in in order to construct and to build the ark from the altar of the burnt offering to the bronze laver to the building of the court. All that is being executed. God gave, stay with me. I want, I want you to be here with me here on this. We can go through, we're not going to go through the details of the construction. More importantly, as you read it, you notice how meticulous the plan was. And now Moses is executing the plan. But there's something that happened before all of that, which I want you to be in, be in light of. Is the chapter before it that we missed yesterday that I said I want to go back to real quick because it sets the stage for what's happening afterwards. They got a promise from God. They have the plan from God. They've got the execution plan. God told him exactly how to go about doing it. He gave them all the details and the specificities, and he gave them the strategy in order to raise the funds to do it. He gave them everything to accomplish the promise, and he told them how to get to the promised land. Watch this. But prior to that, he in, in Exodus 33, verse 3, he says in Exodus 33, verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then he says, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. God gave Moses all the instructions. He gave him all the plan. He gave him the people who he needs to go tell. He even put his spirit on the people and already inspired them. But after he gave all of that and he did all of that, God says to Moses, now that you got the plan, do what you got to do. Go up. Go to that land. Go to the promised land. But I'm not going with you. Wait a minute, but didn't he give us a tabernacle? The tabernacle that, that we just saw them building? That we're going to build this tabernacle? We're going to build it with all these specifications? We're going to do all these things? And, and what is he saying? He's saying to me that he wants us to do all of this, but then leave because he won't go with us because we're a stubborn people, because we're stiff-necked people. And what the, what the chapter tells us later on, a couple verses down, that the people began to mourn. They began to weep. They were stressed out. They were offered the promise of God without the presence of God. They were offered the instructions for the promise of God 
but they were not promised the presence of God. Stay with me, family. Stay with me on this. God says, once you leave here, you can go, but I'm not going with you. And in verse four, it says, and when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are stiff necked people. I could come. I could come up in in your midst in a moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may that I may know what to do to you. He's saying to them, you can go. But I ain't going with you. You can still have the promised land. But I ain't going with you. You 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 can go in and and you know, get all the stuff that I promised to you. But but I ain't going with you. Hmm. And Moses says in the text later on when he revisits God and says, "God, let's let's go back and let's circle around on this." Verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and that, um, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, say you to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me your way that, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. He's saying, show me your way that I may know you. I don't need just the plan. I need you in the plan. I need your way. I need to know you, God. And he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now God says, well, in that case, then I will, I will bring my presence with you. Then Moses reiterates the plea again. And he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. I wonder family, if we have the same kind of conviction to desire the presence of God with the promise of God. There are so many of us that want success. We want growth. We want, you know, we want that business to succeed. We want that husband. We want that wife. We want all these things. But do we really want his presence with us? And I say this to us, I say this to you, because there's a lot of us family who were praying to God for stuff, but we don't really care about God. We just care about what he brings. And yet what Moses is saying is he's saying, God, I know you promised me the land. I know you promised me uh, Canaan. I know you gave us the map out. I know you gave us everything we ought to do. And I know you're saying to me that if we just do these things, then everything's going to be good. But Lord, if your presence does not go with us, let me stay here. I wonder if we have that kind of conviction family. I wonder, do we really have that kind of conviction 
to say, God, I don't want this marriage if you're not in it. God, I don't want this business if you're not in it. God, I don't want this new job if you're not in it. God, I don't want, I don't want this promotion if you're not in it. God, I don't want the money if you're not in it. God, I don't want it if you're not in it. If your presence is not with me. God promised them his blessing and his promise, but said, my presence won't go with you. And Moses and the people stayed right there. And they said, God, I'm not moving. I'm not moving from here unless I know you're coming with me. I'm not moving from here unless you're with me. I call it wisdom. I call it divine wisdom family. And the reason why I call it divine wisdom is because Moses knows when we get to the promised land, if we don't have you with us, we know how to get there, but we don't have the way to stay there. I'm sorry. I, I'm going over time. I'm sorry. I, I know I got to go in a minute, but I got I got to stay here. I got to stay here, family. I got to stay here, family. I got to stay here, family. There are a lot of people that want to get somewhere, but don't want to bring the presence of God, not realizing that when you get there, you're going to need God to stay there. When you get there, you're going to need the grace of God to stay there. Oh, you want to get booed up and married real quick. So you get married without God and you realize, man, I need God to stay married. You want to quickly run into that, that new idea and that new business plan. So you get the money, you get the resources. God says, all right, go ahead, take the resources. But then you get there and you can't stay there. Because you got what you needed to get there, but you need God to be with you every step of the way. There's a dependence that we have to have in God because every decision that we make from here on out must be motivated, must be moved by the spirit of God. Your marriage, every step of the way, marriage is not the goal. Marriage is a path. For those who are saying, I need to be married to be happy. No, you don't. You don't need to be married to be happy. You need to be in the presence of God to be happy. Mar marriage is just one way to be in the presence of God. Singleness is another way to be in the presence of God. You say, well, I need money to be happy. And God said, you don't need money to be happy because there are people without money that have more joy than the people that, that do. Money is a pathway to be with God. <laughs> and not having money is another path to be with God. Each one is a path. There are no goals in life. Only God is the goal. Jesus is the goal. He is your reward. He is your just reward. Go back to Genesis 15. He said, I am your reward. God is saying, I'm the reward. When you have me, you got everything you need because the destination ain't it. And this is the divine wisdom that Moses had and the children of God had. They knew that if God's not with us, even when we get Canaan, we won't be good. And there's some people today that prayed to God for some things. And when they got those things from God, they wondered why they, they don't feel like they need, they're where they need to be because you got that thing and realized that that thing is not what it is.
That thing was not what it that, that was intended to be. And because God wasn't in it, now you can't see the blessing in it. The blessing is God. You can have a car, but without God, it ain't blessed. You can have money, but without God, it's not blessed. You can have children, but without God, it isn't blessed. There's some people right now that are praying for children. There's some people right now that are praying for a husband. There's some people right now that are praying for the wife. There's some people right now praying for friends. There's some people right now that are praying for bills to get paid. There's some people, you get your bill paid this month. Are you good? No, you're not. God is saying, I am your reward when I lead you, when I'm with you every step of the way. When you know me and I know you, then you will experience the fullness of joy. The scriptures tell us that in his presence is fullness of joy. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I wonder, do any of us desire this? Do any of us desire the presence What kind of conviction is it, family? That the children of Israel are in the wilderness and they could go to the promised land, but they chose to stay in the wilderness because that's where God was. That's where God was. God was in the wilderness. And so they stayed there. God wasn't in the promised land, so they stayed in the wilderness. God was in the time where they weren't where they needed to be, where they were in the suffering, where they where they were somewhere in between the promise and coming out of bondage. And they knew that this isn't it. But God's here right now. And if God's here right now, I'm staying right here on this mountain. And for some of us, there are many of us trying to get out, but not realizing God's not moving with us. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you every step of the way. We need you everything that we do. We need you, Lord. We need you. We need you to sustain our marriages. We need you to sustain our families. We need you to sustain our relationships. We need you to sustain the promise. We need you. If, if, if we don't have anything else, let's have God. If we don't have anything else, let's have Jesus. And if you think for a moment that this is some foolish talk, that you're telling me I don't need anything else and that having God is good enough and you think that's foolish, then go ahead and chase the stuff that you're looking for because there's a person in a Ferrari committing suicide. There's a person in a mansion who's completely lost in who they are. And yet there's somebody in a Toyota Corolla 1991 in a one bedroom studio apartment who's saying, Lord, I'm just happy that I'm in your presence. Family, joy does not come in the things that we get. It doesn't even come in the promises of God. Our joy comes in the presence of God. So rather than asking God for things, let's make our prayer today his presence. Let's make our prayer today his presence. Lord, be present in my life today. Be present. You know, you know, you know, it gets real good. That's right. Presence over promise. You know, it gets real good. When you say, God, you don't have to do a single thing for me anymore. As long as I have you. 
You don't have to do a single thing anymore in my life. As long as I have you. As long as your presence is in my life. As long as I know you're with me. As long as I experience your tangible presence. If there's anything that I want you to do, I'm going to make this the title of the podcast today. Protect the presence. Okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with the read and rant. I want to make sure you get it. Protect the presence of God. Everything else is a distraction from the presence. There's somebody right now who's going through some things and and, and it's not to say God can't answer those prayers, but God wants to give you his presence. You need the presence first. You need the presence first. Pray for the presence. Peace is not going to come in the fact that your problem was solved. Peace is going to come when you are in the presence of God. The psalmist says, as a deer pants forth the waters, O my soul longs after you. What God wants to do is he wants you to rest in his presence. He who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of mockers, but his that lies in the law of the Lord. And on this law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield forth fruit, being in his word and his presence. I hope I'm, I'm, I hope you guys are seeing where I'm at because they built the tabernacle. They executed the plan, but they did it with the presence of God. They didn't move until they knew they had the presence. They didn't start building until they knew the presence of God was there. 34, 35, 36, 37. What we just read was the affirmation of God's presence and their acclamation to moving in the vision and the mission that God gave them. Because if God's not with us, then we're lost already. <laughs>